I want to share that uh, you guys are doing a good job with the book of Ecclesiastes as we've been studying it. It is not an easy book. And I know our life groups are discussing it, different people I've had conversations with about this book. It is not an easy book. I was sharing with life group leaders uh, last year, and I felt like, you know, some books are kind of easy, you know, Philippians, I really like Philippians, it's kind of an easy book. There are some books in the Bible that what I are called, I would call them the double black diamond books. Revelation, it's one of those hard ones. Romans is a hard one. Um, and Ecclesiastes is a hard, is a hard book. So you guys are doing a good job. And um, if you're new, this is your first Sunday with us, we're in a series where we are looking at the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And we'll be doing that from now until Advent, which leads us into Easter. And today is the fourth message in the series of messages on Ecclesiastes. And it's subtitled Ecclesiastes, The Search for Meaning. Because we're watching someone searching for the meaning of life. And he's exploring all of these different aspects of human life, searching for meaning. So today in chapter 4, we come up against what I call uh, a problem, the problem of envy. And he's going to explore envy, but then he offers something which I would consider the solution to envy right at the end. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 12. Now it's a little, again, the the language is poetic. There's a lot of different imagery. So I'm going to walk through it with us thoughtfully, carefully, so we can see what's going on. So that we can take this double black diamond book and kind of just ease our way down, down the slope, so to speak. So with that, let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 to 12. And it's also here on the screen if you want to read along. Now, I am going to go slow, so just prepare yourself because we're going to take our time with this. The teacher, or the preacher, continues his long conversation and his exploration by saying this. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity. This is that word hevel. It shows up that 38 times. We understand that word vanity, hevel, as smoke. Something looks solid, it looks meaningful, it looks substantive, but then when you try to grab it like smoke, it disappears. So this also is hevel, and a striving after wind, or as we've seen earlier, in eating after wind. All toil, all skill, comes from envy of his neighbor, and all of this is hevel. Now, this first person is the first of three people that we're going to see. And if you're taking notes, this first person, you could call them the scrambler. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. But this person is scrambling, trying to achieve, trying to get ahead. Now, I think actually the preacher here, the teacher, he says all toil, all skill. I think he's making a point. I think he's overstating 
I think he's overstating to try to make a point. Because we know that people, we know people work hard and they're just trying to survive. Or we know that people are developing skill, like an artist, and they're developing skill and they're just creating beauty. They're not, they're not, they're not striving, they're not scrambling. So we know that there are people that are like that. But I think what he's trying to say here is that when you, when you really look at work and when you look at, when you look at skill and the development of that, I think he's basically saying that there's a scrambler kind of person out there. That there's a scrambler person who toils and puts effort in working hard or tries to be successful in a skill or a technique. But underneath that, and maybe you see this in the working world, underneath that scramble is a quest and a motivation for power or leadership or wealth or status that's about comparing myself to somebody else. I envy someone else, and so I'm scrambling in my work or I'm scrambling in my skills so that I can overcome that person who's ahead of me. And this is what I believe he's talking about here. There's actually a directional element to where it talks about man's envy. It's not just man's envy of his neighbor. It's actually man's envy toward his neighbor. And and that's what happens with envy. If you've ever been envious of someone else, you know that the way envy works in our hearts is that we see someone else and they have something that we want or they're doing something that we want and we have envy towards them. We have envy towards them. And so then we strive and we scramble. Now, Evelyn and I will sometimes talk about this. Um, I mean, this is, of course, living in the Bay Area. Um, I call it the comparison trap. I don't know if you ever find yourself looking at someone else's life and comparing your life to their life. But Evelyn and I have talked about this before. We have friends, and they both have, both husband and wife, they have really high-paying jobs. They're very successful. And... Um, not only do they own one house in the Bay Area, they actually own two houses in the Bay Area. You know? And you're like, man. And they have really success- successful jobs. Right? And, and, and it's very easy for us to get into this comparison trap. Right? You go, oh my gosh. Like, they, don't, they own one house. They own two houses. It's amazing. And, and, you know, you can pick whatever your thing is. Like, you might look across at somebody and go, oh my gosh, I love their car. They not only own one car, they own two cars. You know, what is that? It's this comparison trap. And what we find is that, you know, with our friends, we've talked about this, we go, you know, they own two houses. But, you know, they don't have the greatest marriage. And this is the trap of comparison. This is the trap of envy. That it's very selective. It becomes very myopic. And then you have to step back and ask the question, well, if we envy their houses, do we envy their whole life? And if we're honest, we go, well, it's kind of selective. We envy their houses, 
but we sure wouldn't want their marriage. That's the trap. That's the comparison trap. That's the trap of envy, that it's very selective. But anyway, let me go on here. The verse, next verse says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, the second person, if the first person is the scrambler, the second person might be considered the idler. And the problem with the scrambler and the problem with the idler, the fool who folds his hands and eats his own flesh, actually, the problem with the second person is also envy. Let me, let me uh, tell you what I mean by this. The first person, of course, compares themselves to other people. All these people are ahead of them. And so it's working real hard to try to get up to that person. But the second person, the idler, compares themselves to others. However, they don't work and strive. They see other people, they envy them, but instead they withdraw. They would feel themselves a failure. And in this, they fold their hands and eat his own flesh. What does this mean? I would say in modern language, this would mean the kind of person that would withdraw. And when you're with them, they're the kind of person that nurses past resentment. It's a kind of a person that enjoys the grievances or the hurts that they've had in the past. It's the person that revels in the retelling of wrongs or injustices that have been done to them. But then they withdraw. See, they're still envious, but the expression of their envy causes them to withdraw and to fold their hands and to consume themselves. They suffer from envy Not like the scrambler because others are ahead of them who are scrambling to get ahead. They give up and they have a disdain for people that are ahead of them. And then this eating their own flesh, it's a picture of complacency and ultimately self-destruction. They waste their lives and their life erodes in idleness. And what gets eroded is their humanity their capacity to care for others, and ultimately their self-respect. That's in this whole idea of this sort of image of sort of self-cannibalism. They eat their own flesh. So here we've got two people, both dealing with envy. And then uh, the Ecclesiastes speaker offers this third person in verse six. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Better than all of this envy is one handful of quietness. This third person, they're a picture of contentment. Someone who's comfortable in their own skin. Grateful for the things that they've received in their life. They're not rushed. They're not frantic. They're not scrambling. But they're also not self-pitying and withdrawn. I've been watching a series of martial arts films lately. Um, Maybe some of you know this great trilogy. It is really worth seeing, by the way. It's Yip Man. 
One, two, and three. Do I have some people like, yes, I see some people like, yeah, man, I, yeah, yeah, this is good, this is good. Donnie Yen, it's the Donnie Yen trilogy. Donnie Yen, who's, he's an actor, martial arts actor, and I, wasn't that awesome? I just like, did some right there. It's like, I know some of you guys are like, man, is that Wing Chun? It's like, yeah, yeah. Wing Chun. Yep, man. Right, that's how he does it. Okay, Donnie Yen, he's the actor. If you saw the Star Wars movie Rogue One, I think, Donnie Yen was that dude that was blind, that was outside the Jedi Temple, but he was the Force user. You know, I'm one with the Force and the Force. Anyway, so he stars in Yip Man, in Trilogy. He is a master kung fu artist. And this guy is just super content. He is this handful of quietness. He's just awesome at kung fu, and he doesn't need to prove anything. Now, you see as the story unfolds, all these people, all these various people, for different reasons, come and seek him out to challenge him to a battle. But he is never seeking out the battle. He is never envious of anybody else's kung fu. He's just content with himself. But then you see all these other people striving, all these other people toiling around him. So I was watching Yip Man, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just like Ecclesiastes. (laughs) So if you're having trouble understanding Ecclesiastes, just watch, you know, I don't know, four and a half hours of Yip Man, and it'll all become clear. It'll become clear. All right. So he goes on, the, the, he goes on to say, um, again I saw Hevel under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is Hevel, and in unhappiness. And basically what this is saying is, yeah, you give yourself over to an envious life, working, 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 you're going to end up with loneliness. You don't have anybody because all you're doing is working and toiling because you're motivated by envy. You're not content. You can't see what's going on around you. You're just comparing yourself. That is the problem with envy. And if I was going to summarize what we've seen in these verses, I think there's two things that happen. The problem with envy is that it dehumanizes. Envy at its core dehumanizes, and it also destroys human relationship. Could I have the next slide, please? It'll just show that. Um, The problem with envy, it dehumanizes. So both the scrambler and the idler are dehumanized. The scrambler, he dehumanizes the people that he's envious of because he sees them as objects to overcome. But the idler, that person dehumanizes themselves. Already overcome by others, he gives up. He eats his own flesh. He does not care for other people. And he just withers away. And then the second thing, it ultimately destroys human relationships. Again, because the scrambler is all about working, skill. 
This is your classic workaholic, right? The man or woman who loses their family because they spend all their time at the office. Or the idler, destroys human relationships, destroys the capacity to care for somebody else. So if this is the problem, Ecclesiastes then moves into the solution. And the solution or the cure to envy I would propose that the solution is companionship. The solution to envy, to dehumanization, and the destruction of human relationship is actually companionship, relationship, or even teamwork. So listen to what Ecclesiastes 9.12 offers as the solution. It goes right on from all of this, envy, dehumanization, to say this. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. There's a joy when you're working alongside someone else. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And then here's some really practical things about companionship, teamwork. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, I say, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. You go through all of this envy, the scrambler, the idler, the person that's the workaholic that's all by themselves. And then he says, no, 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 that's all vanity. That's all hevel. That's all smoke. That all is meaningless. Companionship, that is the solution. Let's look at that. It's teamwork. Companionship. Commitment to being for the success of others. Could, could I have the next slide, please? It'll just, it'll just basically um, articulate uh, in, uh, in a visual what I just said. Um, the solution is companionship. Commitment to, to being for the success of others. Listen to these book titles. Maybe you've read some of these. The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Good to Great by Jim Collins. Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. Creating Magic, 10 Common Sense Leadership Strategies from a Life at Disney by Lee Cockrell, the COO of Disney for 10 years. One of my personal favorites, John Wooden on Leadership, How to Create a Successful Organization. John Wooden, the head coach of UCLA basketball, I think he's one of two people who are in the high school hall of, I mean the college NCAA hall of fame as a player and as an NCAA coach. The most successful coach in all of college basketball, John Wooden, on leadership, how to create a successful organization. Um, leadership is an Art by Max Dupree, Herman Miller Furniture Company. Some of these are older books, but maybe you've read some of these. All of these books are in the secular business literature and all of these books talk about how to run a successful organization. 
If you want to know these titles, I can tell you after the message. But all of these books have one thing in common. Good to great, five dysfunctions, leadership is an art, wooden on leadership. All these books have at the core of their message, if you want to be successful in business, form a great team. It's about companionship. They have different strategies for creating companionship. They have different ways to support your team, different ways to invest in people. But every single book out there like these, you want to be successful in business, form a strong team. Get companions. That's exactly what Ecclesiastes is talking about. That's exactly what Ecclesiastes is saying. Companionship companionship. You have a good reward out of working together. You have support on a team when we fall. When one falls in the pit, you have good support. You have warmth from the cold. Do you know that if you are experiencing hypothermia, do you know what you need to do? If you are up in the mountains and you are in an uh, emergency situation and you are experiencing hypothermia, or maybe the person that you're with is experiencing hypothermia, what you have to do is you have to like, get in like, your warm sleeping bag, as warm as you can, but you need to strip off all your clothes and you need to get with somebody else who also strips off all their clothes. And then you have to like, get with them and hug them so that you can be warm. That, that's actually survival ship. That's a survival uh, tip. I know, you're kind of like, what? That's kind of like PG-13. <laughs> but that's actually what you do if you're experiencing hypothermia in the mountains. Right? That's what you actually do. Right? You don't, like, get your hat on and, like, you, like all by yourself and you shiver. You're going to die that way. You got to get in the sleeping bag. You got to get with another person. And you got to get warm. That's what it's saying. That's how you survive. And then when you're attacked, protection and victory. One person alone, they don't stand a chance. But Ecclesiastes says, two, they'll overcome. They'll be victorious. All right. So these are all the good things, right? We kind of know this, right? But I feel like for us, the critical question is how, right? I mean, of course, we, companions are good. How? How do we surround ourselves with good companions? How do we be a good companion? There are two things I'm going to suggest. One, we have to release envy towards others. You cannot be a good companion, and someone cannot be a good companion for you if there's envy. It will not work. It will not work. If you've ever envied someone or you've ever had anyone envy you and you try to be a team, it won't work. It won't work. And then, this is the second thing. If people can release envy on the team, then you make a commitment to being for others. The grammar might seem a little strange here. Commit to being for others. What does that mean? Commit to being what for others? Commit to being for their success. Commit to being for their development. 
commit to being for their leadership. Commit to being for their reputation. And when you're on a team like that, and if you've ever served on a team like that, you know how awesome that is. One of the cool things about GRX in our community is I see this commitment to being for others all over the place. In GRX hoops in the summertime, vacation Bible school, short-term mission to the Philippines. I don't see people's egos, jealousy, envy, rivalry, strife. I see people committed to being for others under the love and lordship of Jesus Christ. And so if you want to see examples of ways that people are being for others in a team, you don't have to look much farther than a lot of the teams that are operating here at GRX. It's really amazing to see. They offer this uh, illustration, and I thought it was kind of cool, so I brought some um, bungee cords. This is what actually is this illustration in Ecclesiastes. And it says um, about companionship that a threefold cord is not easily broken. And so I, I brought some bungee cords from home. And when people in this time, they'd be reading this, would be um, uh, thinking about ropes, what they would do is they would weave a rope. And so I've got these three bungee cords. And what I'm doing here is I'm just weaving uh, them together. And what happens when you weave these three together is that they actually become incredibly strong. I was one time talking to a military guy who said, when you're out in, um, out, out, out like in the forest or out in a hillside, and you're trying to, um, maybe you don't have any rope, and you're trying to get down this cliff, you can actually take long grass and bundle it up together um, maybe in like inch, inch round diameter bundles, and start weaving it like this three-cord weave, just like what I did here. And when you weave enough together, you can actually form a rope and out of grass, and you can lower your whole company down to safety off a cliff, just using grass, because you've woven it together. And so this is, this is a, a, a three cords that have been woven together. Now, by contrast... This cord here is all by itself. And it's got some strength to it. But if we were going to pull on these to the breaking point, this single cord, of course, is going to break more. It's going to break more quickly. But I, I wanted to do this visual illustration because this gets to the question of how do we become companions? Because this single cord here, this single bungee cord, um, is straight. It's all by itself, and it's just here hanging out. For these cords to become interwoven in this strong uh, three-strand cord, each of the cords actually doesn't get to remain straight. Each of these cords has to bend a little bit. Each of these cords has to give in a little bit to the other cords in order to be interwoven with each other to form a stronger team. How do we become companions? We need to 
commit to being for others, which means we need to bend towards others, invest in others, commit to them. We can't just remain our own selves. Like, I'm not going to bend towards others because it won't work. You won't be formed into a team. You won't be formed into companions. So that's just what I want to show. This single cord, it's straight. It's doing things its own way. It's nice and straight and weak. And this cord, to be three strands, they bend towards each other. And that's what we need to do in order to be for each other. My final thing is this. And if we could put it up on the board, uh, please, or up on the, uh, the, uh, the visual here. Sometimes I give you something to do at the end of a message. Uh, with this message, I've offered these four questions just for personal reflection. Envy is a hard thing to uncover. And it's a particularly difficult thing to see if it's operative within ourselves. So this is a kind of a ending of a message where I offer this reflection for you to do this week to see what's in your heart, what's true for you about your life. The first question is, are you scrambling or idling or suffering from envy? Is your life full of scrambling because you're trying to get ahead of somebody else in front of you? Or is there a part of your life where you've just given up? You've decided to fold your hands because it's like, there's no way. Perhaps it's envy there too. Are you suffering from envy? Only you can answer that question. And if you are, what I found is to be as specific as possible. So the second question, who do you have envy towards? Name them. You might be a journaler, you might write their name down. It might be too hard. You don't want to put it in your journal. Someone might find it. So you write it on a piece of paper. You might need to say that person's name out loud. Not, don't just keep it in your head. Say their name out loud. Okay? Who do you have envy towards? And you'll need to release that. That's something you can offer up to God in prayer. God, I envy this person. Please help me with this. A third question. Who can you be a companion toward? Not have envy toward, but who can you be a companion toward? And then the final question. How will you need to bend to be committed for them? How will you need to bend towards them? What in your life will you need to change or alter so that you can be for them? And again, only you can answer that. If you're like me, you go through seasons of envy. You might be in one right now. I've certainly been through my own seasons. And I found that God is faithful and gracious. God tells us in his word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you, like me, suffer from envy, confess it. Offer it to God. 
receive God's forgiveness, his grace, and then you can start anew. Instead of envy towards someone, you can be committed towards someone, bend towards them, find some companions, and find a deeper meaning in your life. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you love us enough to receive us honestly. And God, you don't judge us or condemn us, but God, you want us to be free and you want us to live full lives. So God, I pray that if there are different ones of us here at GRX who are struggling with envy, that you might help us see things clearly. Help us to pray. Lift them up to you. And release so that we might live towards other people in love and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.